uh, play, it's the Sidewalk Prophets uh, really group, a lot of those groups just really humble and amazing to watch. You know, we have been in a series for quite some time looking at, uh, if you haven't been here, just uh, we've been following this thread, this understanding of, of God's uh, uh, of redemption all the way from the beginning of Genesis, and we're heading towards Revelation. We're, we're almost through all this. It's going to be done here fairly shortly. Um, and I hope that you guys aren't going, oh, great. <laughs> you know, thank God it's almost over. Um, because this is just incredible, just looking at the story of redemption throughout God's Word. And that's really what we've been trying to, to, to show is that the Bible in consistency from Genesis all the way to Revelation has this theme that is there. There's other themes, of course, but I think one of the prominent themes that, that, that is there is this idea that uh, God is here. Um, uh, we, we've, God created us. We, we messed up, and, and God forever has been seeking to to redeem us or to buy us back. It's a story of redemption from beginning all the way to the very end where God is seeking to, to pull us back to himself. And what an incredible thing to look at. And we've been looking at the last time that we met, uh, or at least the last time I was here uh, before this last week, uh, uh, we've, we've been talking about the church and, and the story of redemption within the church. And, and I, wanted to, I wanted to land there a little bit today. And and in fact, uh, I just I want you to know, um, well, I, I have this recurring dream. I just want you to know. And uh, it's, it's actually more like a nightmare. And in my dream, I wake up, nobody's home. And so as I'm scrambling to try to figure out where everybody is, I realize that it's 11 o'clock and it's Sunday morning. And, and oops, I forgot that I got to preach today. You know, um, it's just, it's, and I, I, I can't begin to tell you how many times that I've had that dream where you're just like, and then, and then while everybody's at the church and they're kind of, well, where's the preacher at and all that stuff, I'm, I'm in, my, in my dream, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to come up with some sort of sensible, suitable excuse to try to give to you of why I didn't make it, you know, without saying, hey, I forgot, you know, because I couldn't do that, I couldn't do that, right? But... I have had that dream many, many times, and I've also had that dream, and it's just kind of scary, uh, where I forgot to show up at a wedding. <laughs> um, I forgot to show up at a funeral. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, that is, it's, it's just a preacher's worst nightmare thinking about that he may have somehow forgotten something important. Now, I just want you to know that I didn't forget anything important this morning. You're going to think that, because we're, the text that we're going to be looking at is, comes from Acts chapter 2, it's Pentecost Sunday. That was back in um, June, or no, May, May 20th, I believe it was, of this year. Um, that was Pentecost Sunday. But we don't, you don't have to preach um, on Pentecost Sunday to preach the, the, the text. We understand that, right? I didn't forget anything. It's not like I'm like going, oh, I forgot it. I better put it in. We're talking about the church. That's what this is about. And... and um, but this is Pentecost. It's really it's the celebrate. It's what we celebrate the birth of the church. It's the it's the beginning of the church. And and I want to look at, take a look at that today. Now, it, when you look at Acts chapter two, uh, this is just an incredible beginning to the church. I mean, we all realize that, don't we? I mean, it, it's just an incredible, incredible beginning. But I I want to save that for a little bit because I wanted to start really by going to the end of Acts chapter two. And then we'll go back to the beginning. We'll talk about that. But go to the end of Acts chapter 2 and just look at what kind of a church was growing and developing so quickly because the gospel had been preached. Take a look at verse number 41, if you would. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 41. I guess 42. I got it in here as 41, but no, it's 42. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This church is off to a great start, wouldn't you say? I mean, there are 3,000 people on that day uh, that, that, that this first sermon is preached, that, that, that responded to that sermon. And, and then Luke says that they were, added, they were adding people to that body every single day. In fact, daily is something that becomes one of the, uh, the, the most common word in, in the book of Acts for the church and its activity and as things begin to unfold in that church. But I want you to see a couple of things here, and that is that, number one, it's a, it's a learning church. This is a, a church that is learning. They, it, it says they can, specifically, it says that they continued in the, in the apostles' teachings. But I, it, it's more than just hearing them. Now, I got this picture in my mind of, okay, you know, they continued in the apostles' teaching, so everybody's sitting around in kind of a circle, and the apostles are up, and they're teaching, and they're listening to those sermons kind of thing. But I, 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 I think it's more than that. Uh, I continue in my father's teaching. There are a lot of things that my dad taught me that I continue to do. Now, he's not here for me to listen to every day. I don't have a tape recording of his voice, but I continue in his teaching by being obedient to him, by doing the things that my father taught me to do, right? I think there's much more to this statement that they continue to learn than just they continue to listen to sermons, but, but they continue to, to carry those things out. They began to do the things that God was actually calling them to do. So this was a learning church. This was also a sharing church. I, I, I'm, I'm blown away when I read this. That, you know, they sold everything that they had so that no one in the community had need. Wow. A lot of these people were, were travelers. Uh, you know, there wasn't a local holiday inn. You stayed with people. You were dependent. And, and, and there's a lot, that's a lot of people, by the way. 3,000 people. They were a worshiping church. They, they met together in fellowship. They had meals together. This was, this was a church there where the people were attracted to it. You know, it says everyone found favor. And I look at all of that and I say, well, well how did that happen? Well, let's go back to, to, to uh, chapter 2 uh, and look at the beginning. Let's go back to the beginning of that. Um, verse number 1. We, what we see in these first few verses is the setting for this occasion that we have come to call Again, the day of Pentecost, the 50th day after Passover, technically. That's where Pentecost comes from. But look at verse number one. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. 
And suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. It's the day of Pentecost. The word literally means 50 days, actually seven Sabbaths since the first Sabbath of the harvest, the first wave offering of grain, typically in association with the Passover. We've now moved 50 days from the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We've watched the disciples then walk with Jesus before he ascended up into heaven. And Jesus told those disciples, he says, now I want you to wait in heaven until the Holy Spirit comes and frees you to start working. It's the bringing of the, of the first fruits of the Old Testament, if you will. Deuteronomy chapter 26 talks about how after the harvest began that the very first fruit was to be brought before God as, as testimony that they trusted God for the rest of, of the harvest just as they had learned to trust Him for the first fruit harvest. It's really interesting in the, in the New Testament that that image of the Holy Spirit is the same kind of image of a first fruit. Just as the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, it came as a promise that there was more to come. He's called in the New Testament, he's called, the Holy Spirit is called a, a down payment. He's called a, a seal. Uh, it, it's, a, it's the same thing that bankers are used to, uh, are used to when, when somebody comes in and, and, and they make a down payment on a house. It's the, promise that, it's the promise that there's more to come, right? <laughs> when the Holy Spirit takes up residency in us, Christ then begins to live in us. That is the promise. There is yet more to come. Things are going to get even better than they are. And it's interesting when you think about that, how this text fits in with the larger story of what we've been looking at over the past several weeks. While, while we didn't spend a lot of time with this, we had, a, had we had a chance to go back and look at some of those old stories, this, this wind and, and fire thing is a, is a real common theme in the Old Testament, right? It's a common theme for the presence, the very presence of God. They actually call them, the, the big word for it is theophanies. Uh, the, 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 the way that we, what, what it really means is God has showed up. That's what it is. When you see the wind, when you see the fire, when you see the, all that smoke, when you see all that, it, the, 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 the assumption is God has showed up. God is here. And, and, and whenever God shows up, then the, that, that's the kind of events that happen. Clouds and come down the mountain, thunder and lightning and smoke. Things change when God is here. And you're here you have these disciples waiting in Jerusalem. Jesus has told them to wait there. And suddenly all that stuff that they're accustomed to as good Jewish readers begins to happen around them. And their first assumption is God showed up. You'll notice that they began talking in other languages. That's actually the... The word for that, um, literally, that says that it 
we, we've kind of confused that a little bit, but anyway, in fact, uh, but th there are some specific languages. I want you to look at verse number five here. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, be bewilderness, bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utter, utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. One translation says, they're drunk. They're languages. They're languages of that particular known word. I, world. I, I don't know how all that happened. All I know is that you had some disciples. They, stand up, they stood up on the day of Pentecost. They, God had infused them with the Holy Spirit, enabled them to speak in languages that they'd never spoken before. Or sometimes I say you know, that, that they, they spoke and somehow there was a, there was a gift of hearing maybe. Um, I've looked at it that way before too, is that, that they spoke and, and, and what was coming out, of it, it may have been, who knows, Greek, it may have been Greek coming out of their mouth, but they, others were hearing them in their own language. So maybe it was a, it was a miracle of hearing. But, but that would have caused a bit of an amazement. It, it would have caused people to sit back and wonder, you know, what in the world is happening here? And you notice the language of the text, how specific it is. We heard them in our own language. And again, it, it wasn't that they couldn't have spoke Greek because it was a Greek-speaking country. Everyone spoke Greek because it was the language of the day. That was part of what Rome has, had produced was, was this Greek culture in which everyone had this common language. But they heard it in their native language. Can you imagine what it would be like to just sit here week after week and um, trying to figure out the gospel story if it had to be translated to you from a different language every week? See, it, it says that they heard it in their own language, that, that, that really becomes important. The, the other thing I think that's really fascinating about this is, that, is the story that we skipped in the Old Testament. How many, remember, how many remember what happens in Genesis chapter 11? Genesis chapter 11, the whole, the whole earth speaks a common language. They decide to build a tower. It's going to reach up into the heavens. It's going to make them a unified people, and it's going to allow them to have this power beyond their imaginations. And they can build this tower that's clear up to the sky to reach God. And so God comes down, and do you remember what He does? I mean, we even call the tower after the experience, right? It's called the Tower of Babel. He confused the languages because he knew if the languages were confused, the people wouldn't have had that kind of power, that kind of power of united force. I think about that in the context of what's happening right here. Back then, it was a result of sin. 
the language gets scattered. But when Christ comes and the redemptive story starts and the Holy Spirit shows up, what's the one thing that happens? Languages, language begins to come back together. God in His redemptive nature begins the process of bringing us back to the place where we were originally, one language, one people, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so they all heard. They all heard. This Pentecost experience is the experience when God begins to come back into human history and He begins to say, redemption is here now. Some folks were amazed. Others were amused. That really is always the nature of what happens when God is active. Some folks are amazed. Some are amused. Well, then the sermon starts. Once Peter has everyone's attention, uh, well, let me rephrase that. Once God has everybody's attention, right? Then Peter stands up to preach. In fact, Acts chapter 2, you have the very first gospel sermon ever recorded. And here's what it sounds like. Look at verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. He just obviously didn't live in America, right? No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he immediately begins to preach from the Old Testament and and basically says, here's what Joel said. Verse 17, in the last days God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says it's the beginning of what God has been planning all these years. He's pouring out His Spirit. There's men and there's women that are going to speak on His behalf. And wonders happen. But the greatest wonder of them all is this. Remember, this is a Jewish audience in a Jewish temple on a Jewish holiday listening to Jewish speakers speak to Jewish followers. And what did they say? I want you. It's not even going to surprise you. It's going to slide right off. You're going to go, what, what's the point? But it was, it was important to them. Because I'm just telling you, you're not going to hear it like they did. Anyone, say that, anyone. Anyone, anyone may come. Anyone may come. That had to have been a shock to their system. To think that the door had been opened to somebody else besides the inside crowd? But it was. Well, he says in verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to this. 
Jesus of Nazareth was a, was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which did, God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Folks, he says, remember now, this Jesus fellow that, that showed up, he was born in, in Nazareth, you remember him, he was Joseph the carpenter's son. You know about all the miracles that occurred. Verse 23, he says, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Well, that's about as in your face as you can get, right? You killed Jesus. Oh, but don't worry about that, because he says in verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, and then he quotes some more scripture from the, from the Psalms, uh, from David. I saw the Lord always before me, David said, because he was at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my, tongue, my heart is, is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And then he says, brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. What's he saying? He's saying David isn't talking about himself because David did in fact die. He, he, he rotted in the tomb. So he's saying David has to be talking about somebody else. Well, who? Look at verse number 30. He says, but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, he says, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. End of sermon. And in case you didn't notice, it didn't end on a, very on a, on a particularly positive note, right? You killed the Messiah. This Jesus of Nazareth that you put in the grave with the help of wicked Romans, God made to be both Lord and Christ. He is above everything. He is the Savior of the world. He is, God established that in the resurrection, and you killed him. Now, just a side note. You know, sometimes we, we say this, um, and I, I think about this from time to time. And I, I don't know why we do this. We just kind of get in the habit of saying, using language in certain ways. But sometimes we talk about the need for us to make Jesus Lord of our, of our lives. What we really mean is acknowledging Jesus' lordship, right? Because you can't make him anything. He already is Lord. You don't have to make Jesus Lord of anything. He is Lord. God made him to be both Lord and 
Christ. All you get is the privilege of acknowledging Him as your Lord. And, and we can do that today when it matters. Or we will do it later when it won't matter. That's what the Bible tells us. It says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has made to be both Lord and Christ. And then Peter stops. He stops his sermon. I don't know whether he was interrupted or if he just, he just quit. I don't know. I, I, but the next thing that you hear in the text is, what are we going to do? Right? Well, actually, actually that, that's, a, that's a paraphrase of what the text actually says. I mean, man, we blew it. What, what do you do about it? I, 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 the text says, brothers, what shall we do? I mean, and that is really an appropriate response when you find out you just killed the Messiah. If you're a good God-fearing Jew in the temple that day for worship at Pentecost, you're there because you are a faithful Jewish follower, whether you're born Jewish or you're a proselyte, whatever that is, when all of a sudden you realize that the one that you've been waiting for to come for centuries came and you missed it, and then not only did you miss it, but you crucified him, you're probably have to say, what shall we do? Right? That's the way all of us ought to feel, by the way. Because this Jesus whom God sent to be your Savior, to be my Savior, our sins, our sins, hung Him on the cross just as much as the sins of those first century people. And anyone who hears the story of sin and, and hears about the consequences of sin and how sin corrupts our lives and, and, and how God causes how that caused God to send His Son to die, anyone who, does, who understands that ought to be asking the same best basic question, what should I do? Because I'm guilty. And so Peter answers him in verse 38. Peter replies, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what are you supposed to do if you suddenly recognize that what you have done has run counter to what God wants you to do? Well, he says, I want you to repent. It's a real simple word, right? Repent, it, it just means to turn around and, and, and go the other way. You're heading this way and, and you realize that's the wrong direction and you just kind of make an about fist and you start heading towards God's way. That's the wrong way. That's not God's way. This is. Well, I don't know which way it is for you, but I mean, you know, if you're heading that way and it's not God's way, it's not, it's not good. And, and that's, what, that's all that repent means. It means to turn around and go the other way. It's to have that change of heart that says, you know what, man, I am heading in the wrong direction, and what I think I ought to do is I need to turn around and I need to go this way. But then you follow that up with that repentance with an identification in the death of Jesus Christ. And, and that's what we see in Christian baptism. Now, what does that produce? Well, the it, text says that forgiveness of your sins, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it's a, real, a real simple thing. But, but the, the same thing happened. Well, you know, a couple weeks ago, you got a chance to see Nate being baptized in, in, in um, Jefferson Lake, uh, up by his grandparents. Uh, but but that, that happens. Where, you know, we've seen it before. Somebody stands in a pool of water and they say, I, I want to have faith in Christ. I want to have a relationship with Jesus. I, wa I, I want my sins to be, 
be forgiven. I've already, I've, I've responded to Christ in faith. He has commanded me to turn my life around and give myself to him. And I, I, I'm going to be now buried with him like he was buried. I'm going to be raised with him to walk, to walk like he was walk, uh, raised to walk. And I'm going to come out of here a new person. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. And then he says, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. His presence. The one that he promised in John 14, who would come into your life, who would live there permanently, he will be among you, he will be with you, he will be beside you, he will be in you, he will be on you, he will be around you constantly. You'll have forgiveness and his presence. And then he makes this really interesting comment, another one of those that we don't even, we, we just kind of just slides right off. Verse 39, the promise is for you and your children. Oh, catch this next one. And for all who are far off. The promise is for you and, and, and your children. That's the Jews. That's what he's saying, for you and your children. But then he says, for all those who are far off. That's the Gentiles. That's, that was really the language of the Old Testament. The promise for you and your children, for all who are far off, there were those who were near and there were those who were far. And the Apostle Paul picks up on that language in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says that God has brought through Christ peace to those who were near and to those who were far off. He has taken that wall of separation between Jew and Gentile and he has made it clear that salvation is for everyone. Remember verse 21? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Jew or Gentile. God says, what I want for you to understand is that anyone can be saved. Anyone through Jesus Christ who is willing to turn their life over to Him, to repent, to be baptized, to be filled with the Spirit. They will be granted that forgiveness of sins. They will walk in that newness of life to, to be a part of this body of the church that moves into the community with this message that is worth telling because that is, in fact, the gospel. The gospel is just that simple. It's simple. It's not complicated. Jesus came into this world so that he could save sinners like you and me. He did it by dying and being raised from the dead. And, and in that resurrection, God has established that he is both Lord and Christ. And just as surely as the sin of that early, early first century put him on a cross, the sins that you commit, the sins that I commit, put him right there as well. This message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that anyone can be saved, I believe is a message that's worth telling. And that is our commission. Make no mistake about it. Remember, we're talking about redemption here. That, that thread that goes through in church, we are a part of God's planning in that. Redemption comes through, well, it comes through Christ, but I mean, it is, it is relayed through us. Right? That is our commission. Our commission is to tell it, to tell it to our neighbors, to our friends, to tell it to our family, to tell it to our co-workers, to tell it to our enemies, to tell them that they might have life in Christ, that without Christ, you're dead in your sins. But with Christ, there is life. This Jesus, he says, whom you Christ crucified, 
God has made to be both Lord and Christ. And if you need your sins to be forgiven, you need to be repent. You need to, to, to uh, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You need to make Christ your passion in life as he made you his passion in life. Amen? Well, let's pray together. Father, I, I recognize so much that you have made things so simple for us. And this is such an incredible, incredible story. It's such an incredible message that we have. And sometimes we just keep it bottled up inside. And I don't know what we're afraid of because you have promised that you would put your spirit in us and give us that courage and that boldness to be able to speak out. Um, Father, I'm just so distinctly aware that we are, we need people to hear. There are people all around us that need to hear that you accept anyone that wants to receive you. That's a great message. Because when I look around at our world, we have so much brokenness and so, so, hope, so much hopelessness. And the answer is found in Jesus Christ. God, lay it upon our hearts. Embolden us. Empower us. To not be ashamed to speak your word boldly, to share what we know and what we've heard so that others might have life in Jesus Christ. And if there's some of us, I, I know there's times when we need to grow. Father, um, if we need to take some steps, we need to ask that you would help us to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.